0: This is the Critical Transit Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I am happy to be back. I released an episode quite recently with an interview and received a bunch of nice comments. And uh, I don't think anything detailed about the show, but I uh, people seem to be happy that I was uh, recording. And to be honest, I uh, wasn't sure if I had any listeners left because I had taken a bit of an unplanned hiatus as I focused all my energy into transit matters. Which, if you're not familiar with that, is an advocacy organization focusing on better transit in greater Boston. And so I'm still focusing on that, but I wanted to make sure I kept up the momentum in getting stuff in uh, this show. And so I thought that, for starters, I would share an interview that we did on the Transit Matters podcast with Jeff Wood of The Overhead Wire and, and The Direct Transfer. And uh, the OverheadWire.com and the DirectTransfer.com. And uh Jeff is a consultant who has been working in transit for uh probably almost a decade now and he publishes the Direct Transfer which is a daily roundup of news in transit and urban design and other city related things which is really invaluable in in my work and um is very popular and I encourage you to check that out if you are not already subscribed to it. But we talked about a number of things Um, And I don't want to go too far uh, into it because I'll let the interview speak for itself. But I think that as you know, we one of the reasons I try to keep critical transit and transit matters separate was the fact that with transit matters we focus on Boston, and critical transit has long taken a you know a larger view. And uh, so with transit matters podcast, we finally did a show. Is taking a step back from Boston and looking at issues that are really common everywhere. I mean, all these big cities are dealing with things like gentrification and, um, trying to get better transit with lack of funds, a lack of advocacy, a whole bunch of uh, various things. We talked about the, uh, so-called ride sharing thing. Um, you know, you'll hear some of my thoughts and, and his thoughts on, uh, the, you know, Uber and Lyft, which, uh, basically it's just a taxi. Really? Um, they're doing things that taxis should have done years ago in terms of, uh, you know, being able to get a ride on your phone, like, that's pretty basic stuff. Um, and so, yeah, this is it's very uh, very encouraging and uh, that we're having these conversations now more openly and people are starting to think about these issues. So I will uh, share the interview and let me know what you think. Uh, I don't think I'll have anything to say on the other end. So um, hit me up at feedback at com or go to the website, which, as you might guess, it's criticaltransit.com, and you probably know that because you've downloaded this podcast from somewhere. Um, I'm on Twitter at Critical Transit, and I tweet uh, a lot. I would say a lot, so um, go follow me there and uh, on Facebook as well. Um, I don't know if I still have a Critical Transit. Yes, I do. I still have a Critical Transit Facebook page, but it is basically just posting everything that I tweet indirectly. So, um, But if you do Facebook, you can communicate with me there. Um, that's all good stuff. Uh, that's enough for the show update, and uh, let's get into the interview with Jeff Wood. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the Transit Matters podcast. Today is November 3rd, 2015, and we are joined by Jeff Wood from the Overhead Wire and Direct Transfer. And uh, before, we, before we do that, we're going to uh, run through... Uh, I'm going to say that I am Jeremy Mendelssohn. I'm a geographer, a transit planner... And a uh, long-time transit nerd, I guess you could, uh, you could call me. Um, I am the Advocacy Director of Transit Matters, and I co-founded Transit Matters because, well, nobody else was doing it. Uh, somebody needed to speak up for making the tea everything that it can be.
1: <laughs> Alright, I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I work as a lawyer, but in my free time i like to indulge my passion for improving communities through better development and infrastructure, specifically with regards to transit and transportation networks. As you all know, Transit Matters advocates for fast, frequent, reliable, and effective public transit in and around Boston. As part of our vision to repair, upgrade, and expand our transit network, the MBTA, we aim to elevate the conversation around transit issues through informed planning and critical analysis showing why transit matters and where we can go from here. We're joined today by board member uh, Jared Johnson, um, who has not been on the podcast before. So, Jared, why don't you introduce yourself? Cool. Hi.
2: So, I'm the newest member, the newest board member of uh, of Transit Matters, and I'm a a recovering campaign junkie and a uh, a big time transit advocate. And so, I'm pretty new to to Boston, but I've been a transit advocate uh, since my early teen years. And so, uh, excited to be aboard and excited to 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 help out with all the awesome work that's that's happening here in Boston to make the T better.
1: And our special uh, featured guest today is Jeff Wood. Um, Jeff, are you from uh, talk, speaking to us today from San Francisco? Yep. And most of you uh, will not need to be introduced to Jeff, as he does the uh, overhead wire. Uh, you'll see him on Twitter as that. and He's got the website and the blog. And also the direct transfer daily. If you're not getting that to your inbox every day, you should be. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons we brought Jeff on the program is because, we get very Boston-centric here, and you know I think sometimes uh, just as similar to the way the T can be insular in not bringing in new ideas of maintenance, um, we also uh, would like to you know have some comparative discussion about from other transit systems. And Jeff is very plugged into um, transit on the I would say the western part of the U.S., the Southwest and the West Coast. Um, if you if you've listened to his blog, you've heard some really interesting conversations in uh, in a lot of younger transit systems around the country, as well as the struggles uh, with the BART and things, with the Muni in San Francisco. So, you know, Jeff, I, we know that you're a consultant, and uh, we we read your blog and, and listen to your podcast, but uh, what what exactly uh, do, you, do you do for your career? Can you tell us more about some projects you're working on now?
3: Yeah, sure. I always feel like I'm in office space where, you know, the two Bobs are asking, you know, what do you say you do here? <laughs> um I'm a consultant out of San Francisco, and I used to work for an organization called Reconnecting America and the Center for TOD for about eight years. And that was a think tank slash consulting firm slash nonprofit that focused on transit-oriented development. And um, what I focus on now is mostly doing media stuff. So I have the Talking Headways podcast and the the Direct Transfer Daily, as you mentioned, but also some consulting work. So I do some media consulting work um, with uh, folks like NRDC and others, but also um, data analysis. So I'm a GIS uh, nerd and, and geographer as well. So that's kind of what my background is and my, some of my last projects, Reconnect America, were things like the Los Angeles Equity Atlas, where we overlaid a whole bunch of data on top of the, you know, the massive transportation investment that they're going to make soon, you know, health data, housing data, employment data, those types of things to see how those things overlaid. So that's kind of what I do in my, in my work day.
1: That's fascinating. So, I mean, you one of the things that you're able to capture is just a very well-rounded and comprehensive, I think, knowledge of transit. And I think one of the things you said to us in an email was, you know, I don't really know a lot about the nuts and bolts of operations, um, but, you know, I, I remember now that you mentioned the GIS, I'm always, uh, I'm always impressed by when you have someone, a real data geek on the show, um, that you are very familiar with the kind of work they do. Uh, and it definitely opens up new new horizons, new ways of of me to think about things because I come at things from more of a political or an infrastructure or a real estate development perspective. So I always appreciate that about about what you bring to the table. Um, you know, I guess beginning with political solutions, uh, that 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 seems to be one of the biggest issues with with transit is um, whether it's you know big issues of expansion or small issues such as you know a lot of times in Boston we are we're, you know. We're still doing an operator in each car on the Green Line trains, um, and as we're talking about someday getting up to more three-car trains and eventually four-car trains because of the crush loads that we're experiencing, we have the political issue um, for lots of reasons, uh, operational too, the issue of you know do we need to have an operator in every train? That's just one example, um, but there's lots of uh, you know whether it's BRT uh, headways. Um, Branching on on bus and, and train routes, uh, stop consolidation—you know—all these kinds of things require organizations, agencies to work together, political will amongst politicians, and then people to advocate for things. And uh, you know, these political solutions really stymie us in older transit systems where people get set in their ways, um, and nobody wants to lose what they have on their corner right now. And people just have we seem to struggle with a vision and where the vision come from. And I just wonder what kind of perspective you can give about um, that that political game that gets played. I know it. I know it's a big deal in San Francisco, where you have a lot. You know, where where I feel like we are really um, uh, blessed almost to have just one agency, <laughs> and you're you dealing with a lot out there. But could you talk a little bit about you know what you deal with in the Bay Area, but then also what you see politically um, in in other maybe smaller Neutrora Transit
3: agencies? Sure. In the Bay Area, I think it's hard because we have 29 transit agencies, and I think you'll see what's coming up is a merger between two agencies that are even above those, which is MTC and ABAG. MTC is the MPO, and ABAG is kind of a regional needs allocation, um, regional planning organization that is basically funded by MTC. So you have multiple, multiple organizations that are trying to work together to bring transportation to a region and land use solutions as well. But they get, you know, there's, you know, if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, it gets really hard to um, start to think about in broader terms about the transportation system. I'd also say that you're kind of lucky in Boston in that you already have a system. And most of these West Coast areas are trying to build their first system. So I think that's a that's a big difference between the West Coast um, and the, the growing cities and, the, I guess, the, the sunbelt cities than places like Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, et cetera, is that. They're just trying to build their systems out and focus on you know, getting bus service out to different places when you guys already have it. So there's a different kind of edge to it, I think, in the West Coast. And a lot of it is that capital funding for major projects for new projects rather than capital funding for state of good repair. So here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of those issues, which – because we have uh, you know older transit systems with BART and Muni and that we need that state of good repair to happen. And actually, I think you'll find that BART, as much as people give BART a hard time, they've been really good about doing the state of good repair stuff, fixing, you know, retrofitting the tube and the Transbay tube and some other things that have kept it so that it's not breaking down every day like WMATA is right now. And I think some of that deferred maintenance uh, from WMATA um, is starting to hit them in the butt. Where in, at Bart, we're you know we're trying to replace our cars now because we know that at, at some point we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to use them anymore because they were there when it opened in the '70s. So you know those are the types of issues that I think politically come up is the differences is the you know capital funding for state of good repair in the older cities, but capital funding for new projects in places like Phoenix, Seattle, Los Angeles, um, Denver, Portland, etc. Those are all places that are trying to all. Um, you know, try to get money for new projects and also try to figure out how to pay for bus system, you know, projects as well. So that's a, that's kind of a a big difference between the two. I'd also say that um, mayors play a huge part as well in what happens in different cities. So I know that right now here in San Francisco, everybody knows that tonight, uh, Mayor Ed Lee will probably get reelected, even though there's going to be a ton of people that write not Ed Lee as their first choice ballot. Um, <laughs> I actually voted for somebody else that wasn't on the ballot, uh, in my, as my first choice, but you know, he's going to probably be reelected. So, but he's also just not a friend of transit. He's not, he doesn't know what, you know, what it means uh, to people or at least the technical details of it. So. He's done things like reinstituted Sunday meters uh, or taken away Sunday meters. We had Sunday parking meters all over the city, which meant that more people could get um, to and from um, shops on Sundays. But now people are going to just park park their cars there.
1: So it sounds like uh, he's uh, uh, going against the tide on the uh, chupistas and the dy- dynamic parking there in San Francisco.
3: <laughs> yeah, basically he, basically he is. And, and he's just shown no real love for transportation in the city. Other than drivers. So you have that, but then you have places like Houston, which, um, you know, the mayor, uh, you know, promoted a a blogger, Christoph Spieler to the board. He's the Metro board who, who really knew what he was talking about. And so he was the one that helped spearhead the bus reimagining. So I think mayors play a pretty big part in all of this. And I think the strength of your mayor really pushes the boundaries on what you can do politically. Uh, and I've said that a number of times on my podcast and I'm starting to, maybe I've saying it enough times that I'm believing it myself.
0: I think that's kind of uh it's really an interesting synopsis of kind of where we are you know where we're trying to you know we have issues of of leadership um you know i we i mean we have a governor that isn't doesn't seem really interested and in uh and a uh you know mayors our mayors don't really have that you know it's kind of where we're coming from um it's I, I wondered if we you know if we should do I, I liked what the um, Riders Alliance did in New York um, they're a pretty new advocacy organization they they tried to get Governor Cuomo to ride the subway and <laughs> they couldn't get him to ride the subway so they we couldn't
3: get we couldn't get ours either right so they, what they
0: did is they uh they took made a giant uh an actual size cardboard cutout of Cuomo and they just started carrying around the subway and interviewing people and <laughs> it well, well it always
1: it always puzzles me, you know, like you, you were mentioning about the mayor there in San Francisco, how you can have a mayor who is in love with his city, but doesn't love his city's, you know, transit, like the the, the beating heart of his city's transportation network. Um, which I mean, you know, I, Bart and Muni. I, I think a lot of people they they know the cable cars, but they may not understand so much about Bart and Muni. But I think you know, I've been there, and I definitely had an appreciation for both of those things. So it's hard when a mayor doesn't do that. And one of the, and maybe Jared can weigh on this too, but one of the issues I have with here in Boston is, you know, the greater Boston area, at least inside the route 128 belt, I mean, we're talking about 101 cities and towns and, and Boston itself is of course the far outsized player in that game. And so we have a a mayor who has, you know, more of a bully pulpit and more um, um, weight to throw around than anyone else Yet we have very, very little vision about transit and weight being thrown around. Um, and maybe that's just me being naive in, in what the mayor could, could, could get. I know that uh, a lot of towns in New England operate uh, with uh, you know, a board of selectmen or like all the, all the people come together and vote. Town, um, town council. Town meeting. Town, town meeting. meeting yeah, but, government. Um, and, but, but Boston has a really strong uh, city council and, uh, and a stronger mayor than a lot of the other towns. And yet, we don't really see a lot of strength when it comes to transit. They don't. The city thinks of themselves as parking and streets, but not transit, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, fortunate thing is that San Francisco has control of all those things. The MTA controls all those things, so it's a beneficial um, relationship in that sense. But at the same time, there's things that drive people crazy, like the Central Subway and other other things getting. Uh, bike lanes down fast enough and whatnot. So there's still people in the city that are car centric and it's really hard politically sometimes to push past that.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's always a a sort of, you know, um, a a 50, 50 shot on which is better, you know, in terms of, uh, the city having complete control of the transit agency, you know, and in that case, you know, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the mayor of, of New York wants, you know, you know, they've got to get the money from, uh, from the state legislature, but, you know, there's a lot more control because, you know the New York City subway is just inside of the city, uh, and, and I think it's the same way with uh, with the Muni. You know, it's all inside of the city of San Francisco. Versus, you know, here the MT the the MBTA is is just is massive. I mean, even even the subway system before you even talk about the commuter rail uh, extends into um, extends into at least um, four, four or five jurisdictions, um, a few more if you count the the buses before you even talk about that. And so I think that's it's you know it's it's kind of you know weighing you know which is which is better. Mm-hmm.
1: So one of the things that um what we really uh you know get a little stymied by is uh which one of the reasons this organization came into being is that you know where's the vision lie? Does the vision lie with the politicians? Does the vision lie with the agency? Um does the vision lie with the board that governs the agency or does the vision lie with uh you know the people themselves and I do feel I do I do being a, a, a student of um, politics I definitely think that politicians tend to lead from behind. So it's like they figure out where the people are going and they try to lead them there. And um, so we really want to help educate people so that people can d- demand transit that is visionary. you know, Because we're not getting that vision from – a lot of times the agencies – and maybe you see this also. The agencies are so strapped for cash and they're so um, – they, they don't have enough employees that they're just getting through the day. Just getting through the operations is tough. Let alone a five year capital plan, which we started doing here uh, th- you know thank goodness, um, but beyond five years you know we're not even really thinking it seems like uh, wh- where do you see the vision coming from do you and I know you, you 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 look at different jurisdictions, so maybe it's different uh in the bart transit shed shed than it is in Houston or l a um, but but where where does the vision come from and, and where do you see um, citizens being successful at leading you know the politicians and and, and making that vision a reality.
3: Well, I think a good example of something that took a vision was Salt Lake city. So back in, I guess it was in the 1990s, uh, maybe the two thousands, my dates are going to be a little bit messed up, but they put together Envision Utah, which was kind of, they were sick of their inversion days where Utah, or at least Salt Lake City, is surrounded by mountains um, on most sides, and so what they get is these wicked inversion days where the, the the hot air stays below and the cool air stays up top, and it it makes it so that it's really smoggy. And so, but once you get above the the smog line, you can actually see clearly. I actually, have some good flicker photos of this from landing in an airplane, um, and it gets really polluted. But what happened was is that they were kind of sick and tired of that, but also figured that they were growing really quickly and they needed to you know, kind of chart their growth. And so they started this uh, visioning process, which surprisingly led to some really good outcomes for them in terms of transportation. So they've built out their light rail system and are really starting to focus on bus now. And I think it was, you know, I think it was driven by, um, part, partly by the state, but also the, you know, the local community. And I think that you need all those pieces together in a place like Houston, the, Um, there had been some starts and fits and starts with the transit expansion. They, Bob Lanier had tried to talk about putting together uh, a monorail system (laughs) downtown and that got, you know, he was, he replaced the light rail system that was, that they were thinking about planning. And then the monorail system didn't go anywhere. And finally it took Mayor Brown just kind of saying, okay, we're just going to do this. We're just going to build this light rail line. And, And even the, the federal, um, you know, the federal support that they were supposed to get was against them. Tom DeLay, it, you might remember him as the hammer. Uh, he, he put in a rider into the federal transportation bill that said no federal funding can go towards Houston Light Rail. Eventually, K Bailey Hutchison came in and gave them kind of some money otherwise, um, kind of as a, as a half of their full funding grant agreement, which is FTA parlance for capital funding that the, that the, the transit um, gets from, you know, the New Starts program. But they had to do it themselves. And then they had an election back in 2004 uh, to do some expansions and are still fighting with Culbertson, who's a congressman on the uh, southwest side. So, you know, the the kind of push from the p- political folks in town were, was what, you know, pushed things, got, got things going there. And in places like Charlotte, the mayor was actually a big player, even though now he's at the state as the governor and he's kind of pushed, you know, he's kind of gone uh, the other direction on transit, it kind of. Pushed back against his original legacy because of, I think, more conservative uh, constituents and also a different kind of landscape at at the state level than at the city level. But, you know, I think it just. Is so different in every single place. I don't know if you can actually say that, it, that, you know, there's one way that works best. I know that here in Oakland, folks are pushing for a transportation department and they're, you know, political or- they're politically organizing and trying to get the policy right. But they also have to get people elected to get into the offices that they want uh, to make change. So, you know, you have to have both sides. I think you have to have the political will at the, you know, decision-making level and the voting level. Um, but also at the participatory level, at the, at the local residents and citizens who are getting together and putting together kind of a backing for those folks to make those decisions. You have to have both sides; otherwise, it doesn't really work. You know, um, you know. I have a, a, a number of good friends that I've worked with in the past in the private nonprofit sector that have gone into the public sector, and the great thing is is that they learn from what they do in the public sector and then take that in the private sector to kind of you know turn it into a real thing. So, you know, it's hard to say that you could have it. Uh, you could you could have it without having both sides because unless you know if you could do all the advocacy and stuff you want, but the, if the person in the mayor's office or the person at the city council level doesn't understand what you're trying to do, it doesn't make a difference because those are the folks that are voting in and out. So you have to have it both ways, and and, that, and that's really hard because it takes a lot of organizing, it takes a lot of education. Um, you might get a, a, a super smart person every once in a while that gets in there and 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 you get lucky, um, but then you have to convince all the other council members too. So it's kind of a it's kind of a little bit like a political machine, <laughs> you know, getting all this stuff done. It's a, it's a big task, but you know, I'm starting to come around to it. it just can't be somebody, you know, me and my, me and my pajamas writing about a new transit line that I want. It has to be something that, um, that everybody en- endorses and understands and can fight for on both sides.
1: Well, yeah. do you, you know, to follow up on that, do you, um, so let's say you have a strong mayor because I know it tends to happen, you know, we just came off of having mayor Menino, um, we just had the anniversary of his of his death last week. Um, unfortunately, you know, within a, within just a few weeks, it seemed like of, of leaving office. But he had been mayor for Jared. Was it two decades? Um, uh, more than two
0: decades. Four terms, I yeah. believe. Um, yeah, so, so at least just, sixteen years. Yeah, sixteen
2: years, I believe.
0: And, and it, I won't say because it's the anniversary. I won't say anything negative. How's that? But uh, <laughs> no,
1: beloved, beloved. <laughs> I you know, I, I only live here a short time, and definitely uh, love the man. But um, you know. When a strong mayor gets that um, momentum behind him, um, and I think we're probably already seeing this in our current mayor, do you see examples of where a mayor who has the support... Because it seems like if the politician comes from that move, that grassroots movement and, and they get elected already understanding that, that the people want to see transit and they sort of have that vision. But the other side of that coin is if there's already someone who... Is basically in that seat of power, and they're holding on to it pretty pretty strongly. Do you see examples of where people bring them around to to see that transit vision or see how that could you know uh, meet the needs of of their constituents?
3: That's a good question. I'm not sure because um, a lot of what I've focused on anyway is mostly capital expansion or at least elections to pass um, sales tax measures and. A lot of that has come from new mayors that have come in. So Mayor Nichols in Seattle, you know, Villaragosa in Los Angeles, there was Mayor Brown in, 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 uh, uh, in Houston. Um, you know, I, uh, right now, Ralph Becker in, in Salt Lake City is, is a good one. He was a city planner at one point. So... Um, you know, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't come across that because right now, the reason why I've come up with this hypothesis about mayors is that I haven't really seen them change their mind. I think we had, um, you know, in Austin, we there was recently a transit election uh, a couple of years ago, and it really kind of stung a bunch of people because there was an alignment dispute between the advocates and the folks in City Hall and, and in the, you know, at the transit agency and the planners. And you know, I think that's part of the reason why it lost, but other there's other reasons as well. But it was hard because it was hard to overcome a mayor that wasn't quite as strong as as you know people wanted, and it was hard to convince him of um, one way or the other. I, mean, I think he had his his way that he wanted to go, and that way ended up being the wrong way. So, um, I think there's a lot of examples of mayors that are that are there that are that are influenced because they're on the right direction, but then again. Um, I haven't totally seen some that have changed their minds. That, they're probably out there, but, you know, it's just not in my, in my um, you know, in my, my knowledge.
1: So not to put words in your mouth, but it almost sounds like you're saying that, um, and I know Jeremy had something to add too, that um, a lot of this vision may come from more from changing demographics that we see in our cities and sort of um, uh, people who come into the cities with a different mentality for getting around and how they want to live and, and experience the city than it does necessarily from the people who have already been there and are already entrenched in leadership.
3: Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say that uh, it's people who are rising to the ranks who have been, might've been there for a long time, but once they get to power, they get to their, their ideas implemented. Right. So Libby Schaff has been in Oakland for a while and now she's gets to be mayor and she's pushing for, changes in reforms and transportation because folks have convinced her and she's been there for a while. So I think it's not necessarily, I don't know if it's a demographic change or, you know, we had this discussion at Revolution last week about millennials and boomers and stuff. And I, I, led a panel about that. And it was hard to have a discussion that was an argument because everybody was in agreement that I don't know if we should really be, um, you know, categorizing folks because we're such a weird, uh, <laughs> weird kaleidoscopic, a group of people in each generation, you know, not all millennials are like, uh, even the, don't, don't listen to what the newspapers tell you. But, you know, I think that these po- folks have been paying attention for a really long time and, and they have an understanding of what they want or what they feel is best. And they'll go and make that happen when they become, you know, I guess more powerful. I don't want to, you know, it's, it seems weird to say more powerful, but have more influence over the process, I guess, is what it really is. But so. mm-hmm. oh.
2: Speaking of what you said about the demographics, I I, I do think that could play a part uh, in in Boston if they're as they're looking at uh, with the final draft of the uh, it's a new thing they're doing called Boston twenty uh, go Boston twenty thirty where they're looking at doing a uh,
1: it's kind of a visioning process. All uh,
2: right, a visioning process for uh, for transportation and, and it you know it, it does only cover you know just the city because it's it's a city initiative. But uh, I, I think looking at that and looking at um, how Boston is changing, and and a lot of the the kind of uh, the controversy that that's happening between um, you know longer time you know longtime residents um, who you know some of them still embrace the car at a higher rate than young people who are from Boston and new residents coming in, and so I I do think that that could be uh, could be a catalyst for some change, and looking at how we prioritize uh, transit and how we prioritize active transportation is is looking at what comes out of that out of that plan and looking at um you know h- how do you help shape boston for you know for the next um you know the next 20 30 years uh, as you have millennials uh, growing as a as a bigger part of the population and um uh, you know looking at, at what boomers want uh is there as they're getting older and looking at you know they you know it's, it's you're kind of seeing this from both angles saying boomers um want a more walkable um a more walkable city, uh, as well as millennials. So I think th- I think there there is some possible some possibly some opportunity there for the demographic side.
0: And as you mentioned that, I mean, t- somebody mentioned to me today that you know maybe we should have like an MBTA 2030. Like, what's your vision for transit in mm-hmm. 15 years? And I think this is the Go Boston 2030 is actually they they're they're saying um, and they're having a parallel one. Imagine Boston 2030, which is like a you know everything, all the issues. Um, and they said it's the first citywide plan in, in 50, 50 years. years yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, in Portland they they had, you know, planning processes in the 70s that they're finally now just finishing the the orange line um was part of that network, I think it was part of that network anyways. Um or it might be the first line past that network that they had planned in the 70s, but they they're really good at at, you know, putting something to in, you know, in paper and then um, making it happen, so you know somebody's actually gone through and made a plan and then followed through with it. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's that that frequent that that actually happens. We do a twenty thirty plan or a thirty year plan and now. 20, 2030 seems so close now than it did in, in two thousand or nineteen ninety. But um, but it, it's yeah, it's just year. interesting yeah. to see.
0: I mean, one of the <laughs> and one of the challenges that we have with the with the planning process, and you know, a lot of it has to do with the construction process as well. Um, i I was talking to Governor Dukakis last week uh either before or after his talk and and i said why you know what's we have we just had a project a green line extension it's a very simple light rail extension for four miles on existing right of way um which does have to be reconstructed but I said you know why why did the bids come in like a billion dollars over, and you know what's what's going on here and what you know and is this corruption or what And, you know and he basically said well the um it's, it's because we ushered out, you know, in the 80s, we ushered out all these, all the, the employees that used to do this stuff, and now it's it's all done in the private sector, and, you know, he was very, you know, this was very ideologically motivated and all that. Um, and I wonder if, you know, sort of how... Since we're speaking to a consultant. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right Not that know. kind, though. <laughs> um, and I wonder how, how that fits in, because it takes us sort of forever to build stuff, and Well, project management is what you're getting to, right? And right? I know that this
1: is a concern that Jeremy expresses again and again. And I think quite effectively that if we're weeding out, if if our revolving door is too effective, right, between the public sector and the private sector, and we're cutting and cutting in the public sector, and we're continuing to you know have attrition, and then if there's demoralization within mm-hmm. the public sector, then then how are we building up our ranks of highly skilled, experienced? project managers who can manage these huge infrastructure projects on time and on budget and i think i think since we are speaking to a consultant and you probably don't do exactly this kind of this kind of thing necessarily but you know what you, you see these things also and you know there's big projects all over um do you have thoughts on that
3: on transit expansion projects, overruns generally, or, well, or project well, management. More or?
1: about yeah, more about the ability to have in-house project management that can that can do these projects effectively, and maintain um, um, public trust, and and the interplay between that and private consultancy. You know, I, and I know that the private sector can provide a lot of expertise, um, but sometimes I do wonder. And I, I'm not going to. I'm in favor of a lot of these private sector to, to the extent they can help. But I do wonder if if we're sort of, um, you know, sapping our ability to do this uh, in-house and basically forcing it to to cost more.
3: Well, the hard part, I think, from a light rail perspective is that we're not building, like, a ton of projects. And so I think that there's only a few companies that actually do this work, Um, whether it's the estimation or the project management or the even building of a light rail line. I'm not sure that we have the expertise that say... Um, a country that might have expanded a, a really fast and frequently um, has, you know, we don't really build that much light rail. We might have a couple lines open a year, you know, and so, you know, maybe some of those are in-house, you know, uh, designed and, and, and built and maybe some of them are outside house, you know, designed and built. So I don't know. That experience thing is a really tough nut to crack because I think once you get experienced, you become uh, really well s- sought after but then at the same time you're going to obviously charge more money. I think another thing is that you know, I don't I don't know if we're actually um you know, if we're actually learning how to design, you know, we're learning how to, to keep the let me say this again. I don't know if we're actually figuring out how we can have people in house that can be a check or a balance on what's being said outside of the house. So somebody inside says, you know, we need to cut down to a certain amount of money or we need to make sure that we don't go over this cost, et cetera. And we need to make the cost cuts, but we need to make it in a way that is, you know, value engineering so that we can figure out how we can actually do it correctly and also still get done what we want to get done. So, it, you know, there's there's a little bit of a fox and hen house uh, kind of thing going on, um, it seems like. So, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's really difficult because as somebody who doesn't necessarily plan transit lines in that. You know, and from the engineering standpoint or the cost standpoint, I'm just kind of an outside observer. It seems like it would be nice to have folks that kind of sat on the inside and were monitors that knew exactly what was going on and had the expertise of doing ten, fifteen lines themselves, but that's not really the case. You know, and then the people from the outside, they might have done ten fifteen lines, but also they might also just take the template from the last line and slap it down and add ten percent extra costs, and then we see the cost raise rises. You
1: know? And I can definitely see that as soon as somebody in house gets expertise under their belt of doing one of these lines it's more lucrative for them personally and for their family if they were to go across the country to the next big line that's being built than it would be to stay in-house
3: right and you see this with um you know consultants and and engineers. I mean, for Jeanette Said Khan, for example, she worked for a major engineering company before she went back to the city after, you know, working for the FTA. So it's it's one of those things that in I don't know if she, she didn't do trans I don't know if she did any transit uh, projects, major transit projects or what her her role was specifically, but um you know, it's one of those things where you know, people are in and out of that. Of that, you know. I guess I don't want to call it a revolving door because it's not necessarily a revolving door. It's not quite the same patronage uh, system, but expertise, uh, you know, spin over. I guess maybe is my my new phrase for it.
1: That's I like that phrase, and I also I, I think that you make a really really good point about um, the, the fact that even though America and especially a lot of these towns uh, in in the, in the uh, New England corridor, uh, the Northeast corridor. I'm sorry. Um, even though we have rail networks that go back, you know, hundreds of years, we're actually very new or very inexperienced um, for the current generation of builders and planners of doing these projects. Even though we have these legacy networks that go back, um, you know, so far back into the past, we just haven't been building them recently. The
2: most recent expansion, uh, other than the the one in New York, I can think of on this corridor, big big expansion was probably the Red Line in the '80s. Right? Mm-hmm. New York didn't build anything.
0: Well, we had a Richard. bunch of expansions in the '80s under Governor Dukakis. <laughs> right, true. But, um, New York has built a few things, but we m- m- minor things, though. Really, since yeah. Philadelphia did their Center City commuter connection. That's right. In the '80s or, 70s
2: L- or 80s. L- late '70s or '80s, but but yeah, but yeah so you're really talking about. Not a whole lot in the 90s, not a lot right. in the early 2000s. So that, that, that's whole more than corridor. a generation ago exactly. when it comes to careers. Right. Absolutely.
1: So I guess that would that would go a long way to explaining why we're having so many of the bidders on these projects and for um, um, the rolling stock and things like that being um, from China and Japan and countries that have been doing a lot of this building lately.
3: Yeah. Well, that's another issue is rolling stock. (laughs) That's a whole other can of worms, I think, especially with Mm -hmm. Buy America provisions and things like that. So, um, you know, you have to have it all built and assembled in the United States. Actually, Houston had a big problem because they went with CAF, which is a, a Spanish company, for their new light rail lines. And then something happened where they... Built the first two cars in Spain, and then they brought them back over. And then they violated that violated the Buy America uh, thing, and it was you know it's like, well, why don't why don't we want the least expensive cars? You know, if we're trying to save people money, that's another thing, right? That cost cost escalations through things like that. There's, and it's not just that though; it's just like all these little tiny little things that add up over time to you know something that that is going to cost a lot of money. But that's one example. In Houston, with that car issue with the Buy America Act, where you know it just happened that they they did something wrong, and so they had to rebid, and I think they're going to get new cars from somewhere else. I, I Do they still get CAF? I'm not sure if they well. Had to no, you bring up like that, a really but, good
1: point, though, about us talking out of both sides of our mouth when it comes to cost containment. Yeah. Especially, it's especially egregious with the Buy America, but also yeah. things like PTC and and other you know safety measures that we don't do off the shelf solutions that we can get from um, other successful <laughs> agencies or networks around the world. Um, and that's a big issue. And- I mean, yeah. and I, you,
0: you mentioned Houston, and, and Houston, I, I believe, built their light rail with, without a dime, as, as you alluded to a little earlier, without a dime of federal funding. Um, the and, first one, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wonder if that's, um, if that, I guess that helps in certain ways, but I mean, obviously the federal government provides a lot of money, and Right.
3: Well, that. Well, that's. An, well, no. Actually, you're right. That's another thing. Is the federal process is actually a slow process. It t- it typically will take about ten years to get a, a line built. Um, you know, it, from going from the first twinkling in somebody's eye possibly to, and even longer, actually, if if we're talking about twinkling and eyes, but, (laughs) um, but, you know, if it goes from start to finish, you know, you have to go and you have to wait for the FTA to have the money available. You know, there's only $2 billion, if that available a year for capital costs and transit. And a lot of these lines are billions of dollars and they're trying to get 50% match. Right. Um, I actually did a, a a report back in 2013, I called the transit space race, which looked at every single planned transit project in the United States. And I only think, I think I only got the cost estimates for about a third of the projects, maybe a half of the projects. I can't remember now off the top of my head, but it was, it would have taken 78 years with, you know, if everybody wanted a 50% match from the federal government to build all those lines. And that's only like a third of the lines that people wanted to build. So that money is very small in comparison with the amount of things that we're trying to build now, now places like Los Angeles are going through the, the TIFIA route. I don't know if you guys are familiar with TIFIA, but basically it's a bond program where you can get things cheaper. And if you, for example, Los Angeles is trying to get their sales tax, uh, you know, renewed for so many years. So basically they can, um, say that they're going to pay it back over that amount of time, but build it faster. So it costs less, you know, if they, if they build it at the front end, they can, it'll cost less than the back end. Um, Oh,
1: I was going to say, Jeff, that's a great segue because the next thing I was about to ask you about was, um, you know, we we have a former transportation secretary who um, has decided that the gas tax, which I think a lot of us will admit, the gas taxes, raising that is not the way um, to fund these projects. We had a huge defeat on a gas tax increase last year. Um, and he's he's very gung-ho on VMT and congestion pricing um, when we get um, our, our toll
0: um, um, even though VMT is basically the same thing as a gas tax. Price.
1: Well, right. It, 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 you know, six one half is the other, I guess. But I you know, think. and then and then others are more in favor of uh sales taxes or um value capture um for transit sheds and um you know other other types of local impact taxing. Are you seeing any one of those that seems to be winning out in the different um areas that you keep an eye on?
3: You know, last week at NACTO Jared Jordan from CFTE and APA had a really great slide that I wish I could project into everybody's brains right now. But basically it showed that a lot of the funding sources for transportation come from sales taxes and very few of them for bonds and from value capture and all those other things. We actually found uh, in some of the reports we did at the Todd that value capture actually doesn't get you a lot of money unless you have huge amounts of vacant land. So streetcars in places like Portland and Seattle, they actually benefit from having a lot of vacant land uh, around them. So for example, in, in Portland, um, they had the South Waterfront, but also the rail yards, the Hoyt Street rail yards that they redeveloped into this amazing neighborhood, which is the Pearl District now. But um, it didn't, you know. It might provide a lot of value capture for them in terms of affordable housing, parks, et cetera. And actually, they have a really, they had a really cool system for figuring that out—a development agreement. Um, kind of a segue here. The development agreement actually said if you, the original zoning was 15 units an acre, and they went up to like 130 or something like that. And every time they stepped up in their their ability to change the zoning, they had to, the developer had to give something back, whether it was funding for the streetcar, or parks, you know, dedication of right of ways, 30% affordable housing. Every time it stepped up, you could get more density, but you had to give something back. So that was kind of a cool thing that they did. Um, but there's there's little there's little evidence to say that value capture as a whole will work in a place that's already developed fairly, you know, sh- fairly uh, dense, or at least has housing existing without, uh, you know, the the exchange of zoning code that will come with a massive redevelopment because you can't really, you know. It, for TIFF funding and those types of fundings value capture, you can't really get much out of something that doesn't have a really low baseline. So I don't know if folks know how TIF works, but basically you set a baseline and then you take the cream off the top whenever it rises um, you know, for the rest of the time that you set that TIF district up or that value capture district up or whatever it is, so the the cream can't rise very high if it if it is already kind of halfway up the up the the glass, right? So that's that's the biggest issue with that. Um, but sales taxes and those types of things were the biggest uh, funders of transportation, and and so you know there might be other ways to do it, but it's hard to to actually get people to to think about other mm. sources of funding, you know.
0: I mean, it's it's interesting to to think about this because uh, Boston is actually it's, I just saw the other day it's officially the most rapidly gentrifying city uh, in North America and um, you know it's not just Boston this is going on all over the place and it, it it it's relevant because you know when we talk about a lot of these developments that are going in um, this is where you could potentially be getting your your value capture and it's sort of there's I mean, people speak out of all sides of their mouth with regard to this issue. Do we get, uh, you know, do, we, do we charge the developers? Do we want to entice the developers to do certain things? Do we want to let them out of their parking minimums? Or, you know, and on and on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I want, and I'm, I'm interested, really interested in your take on um, San Francisco has, maybe it's not the most rapidly gentrifying place anymore because it's already gentrified perhaps. But I mean, it, mm,
1: it's
3: that's it's, debatable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I
0: want to get well, on this near because, the
1: Transbay Terminal. We're still seeing these, right? That's I mean, right. Yeah. You know.
0: And because you know, this is something that's going on everywhere, and you know, we're facing a major housing crisis right now, where there is just you know, people are getting pushed to uh, smaller cities an hour out, and you know, having to come back for work and everything, and it's it's really get it's really a heated debate. And one of the things we deal with with transit is like, well, we don't want better transit because you know. Then, it's going
2: to attract newcomers. Yeah. They're yeah.
0: So, I mean, how do you – you, have you dealt with some of this? And, you know, do you have thoughts on the, this giant issue?
3: It's <laughs> a giant issue. It is. Um, you know, you hear that from folks. There's a – the Geary Corridor here in the Bay Area in San Francisco is one of the most traveled bus corridors on the West Coast. I think it gets like sixty five to 70,000 riders a day, something along those lines, on two different bus lines, the 38 and the 38R. Um, and the, the issue becomes the residents in the outer Richmond or the inner Richmond, which are the folks who live outside of the western neighborhoods, or the eastern neighborhoods, I should say, in the western neighborhoods, which is kind of a dividing line for density in the city. And the people in the eastern neighborhoods or the western neighborhoods – she's like getting this messed up – in the western neighborhoods are really worried about what, when if you build a subway that allows people to get to your neighborhood – to downtown in 30 minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes, even if it, you know, if it's a subway, um, they're really worried about the changes that would happen and the density that would be uh, required of them to, you know, (laughs) make, make a, a value out of that investment. And so you see that here in the Bay Area where they don't want on that corridor, they don't want BRT and they don't want a subway because they are worried that it's just going to change the character. I hate that, that kind of term, change the character of their neighborhood. And so that's something that pops up all the time. And you see the gentrification claim uh, and displacement claim all the time. Although, you know, I think part of the problem with the relationship between transit lines and displacement and gentrification is that when a city, for the most part, a lot of cities build one line at a time. And so when you do that, you put undue pressure on a single corridor where things are going to happen. So in Charlotte, it's going to be the South corridor in Minneapolis, it's going to be the central corridor between Minneapolis and St. Paul. And, you know, in Houston, it's going to be the downtown you know corridor that they built first. They're always going, instead of building networks, we actually build one line at a time. And that puts a ton of pressure on the neighborhood that that line is going to go through, because that's where the developers are going to say, Hey, we can actually make some money here by changing the zoning and things like that. So. That's actually a major issue that I think we need to address. And I, I know that Stephanie Pollack, who is now your transportation secretary, has done a lot of research on this at the Dukakis Center when she was there. Um, but I think we need to think about it even more now and look at places that might be building a network. So Denver, a place like Denver, is gentrification happening in, along all those rail lines? Uh, maybe not, because they're all getting built at the same time. The stations are all going to pop up, and so it might diffuse some of the, the um demand for that type of living. The same thing in a place like, uh, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia with legacy systems are all those station areas gentrified now, you know, because they're diffused because there's so many opportunities in New York city. It's been a slow kind of roll. And also, you know, I did a a great, um, a great podcast episode with uh, Miriam Zuck recently, who talked about this project she's working on called the Displacement Project at UC Berkeley, and they're talking about the kind of the long tail of gentrification um, and displacement, and it's really something that is not just popping up on people. It's actually happening over decades and decades of time, and so I think we need to kind of reframe the way we think about that as well. Um, I'm not sure if I just answered your question, but I think... <laughs> no, I, th- I think it gives a lot of really interesting yeah, to think about,
1: and I think one of the... You really hit on... I always think about gentrification from... The biggest issue we have in Boston is supply. Demand is hugely outstripping supply, and we just cannot increase demand fast enough for anything other than luxury, you know, apartments, which is why we find ourselves in this mess. Um, but you hit on something that I don't think about as much, which is the supply of transit. Um, and so, if you're increasing the supply of transit, if you want to think about that in the same way as that equilibrium of housing, um, but I think getting that gets back to your to your um, uh, point about tiger grants and things like that is that how do we build whole networks you know yeah. until we crack that funding and that vision and that takes a lot of vision to build a network you know yeah. so
3: yeah and that's what that's what Los Angeles is thinking about you know they're thinking about building a whole network at once uh you know building the subway to the sea but also extending lines and things it's not going to be you know, the end all be all of the network for Los Angeles. But it is something that's going on at the same time. They're going to build the Central City Connector, they're going to build the extension to Santa Monica. They're going to build the subway to the sea. They're going to build the Crenshaw line. All of those things are going to add up. The bus rapid transit lines with priority, you know, lanes that they're going to build, those are all of those things are going to add up. And they're doing it on sales taxes. You know, so go back going back to your question about, you know, funding sources, that's the funding source they've chosen to do that. But they've also, you know, basically you know, register that out to thirty, forty, fifty years, so that they can bond against it and and pay it back early. You know that type of thing. So yeah, and that, that's the I'm federal program. Sales right?
1: tax too, Jeff. And I don't really, I've seen that happen, um, and and I I'm not really sure why it's not at all. I don't really see it discussed at all up here. Uh,
2: I I believe uh, I don't have to check on this, but I believe that the uh, the state restricts how much Boston can raise the sales tax.
0: The cities cannot tax themselves independently without a special without approval from legislature the legislature and there is an organization that is working to get such an uh, such a uh, re- the that restriction uh, repealed or lightened but that would i think believe itself require a ballot amendment across Probably. the state so yeah okay, this, that sounds like something <laughs> well, that's so there, written into a constitution yeah there's
1: a topic for further research um <laughs> and but, but that's enlightening and but i do think it's interesting that um it does seem like newer cities, and if we can even call L.A. a newer city, because of you know the, the time frame in which they've experienced their massive growth uh, since World War II, um, newer cities seem to—I I feel like—really have a benefit of being able to think in terms of network um, and reimagining their networks in ways that I, I think a lot of times in in the older uh, areas of the Northeast Quarter we're sort of we have this legacy network that is very much built upon like a hub and spoke, um, mm-hmm. and we really struggle with now. We need uh, a network that goes horizontal also, but it's very difficult to retrofit that kind of network onto the very naturally existing legacy hub and spokes network we have that connects town centers to downtown, but doesn't connect town centers to each other.
3: Yeah, if I could go back two seconds to um, funding, you know, Texas has that problem too with uh, the limitation of how much sales tax they can do so they can only do a cent for the cities and a funny story is that um when they allowed the cities to do that Dallas and Houston they um wrote a bill at the state and the state hates Austin so much that they wrote a bill that said you know all cities above x population can have a cent sales tax for their transit system and build a transit system which you know kind of left out Austin because it was right, like, you know, 50,000 people under that limit. And then when Austin finally passed that limit, they were like, okay, maybe you can do it. And then they they ended up having a cent sales tax. And they've had, there's a whole other history of, of going up and down to the half cent and a cent and people getting angry and Austin messing things up. And Houston recently had something where they gave a quarter of their cent to their cities. And, and Austin did that too, after they lost the light rail election in 2000, I can go on for days about that. But um the next question you have had was sorry. I'm now I'm now I'm now I'm back to the original question. What was?
1: It? <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was just mentioning, you know, the how how newer cities um, have an advantage right. of reimagining their network in a way that older cities with legacy right. hub and spokes networks don't have the luxury of. Right.
3: Well, I don't I don't know if it's actually an advantage um, so much as you know a, pol- a political action. I think what we learned from Houston and, and what Christoph talked about. Um, when he talked about the Houston bus reimagining is that they actually had the legacy of the old streetcar network that they had to work off of where the bus lines were following that. And then they had gotten chopped and cut up and, and one line had, you know, gotten moved over a block, you know, in the, in the 1970s. And then the 1980s, the other section of it got moved over until we had these jigsaw puzzle lines that went all over the city. What they're just doing is basically re re not reimagining necessarily, but just restructuring Um, The system to where it actually goes in straight lines. I think part of the problem with older legacy cities and older cities is not necessarily the fact that they can't do that per se, but it might be just the structure of them. I know we had um, Tim Sullivan on a couple weeks ago and he talked about, you know, places in the West that designed around. Um, the large, you know, uh, grid network that was used to sell land in the West, in Salt Lake City and in Phoenix. And those systems are horrible as as they stand right now. The streets are super wide. I think you mentioned that, you know, the streets in Salt Lake City were developed uh, by (laughs) Brigham Young so that somebody could turn around an ox cart and and without having to make a a three-point turn. But But, you know, now that those things are there, they actually are bigger opportunity because they are the grid and they are a network that can be put, you know, can put bus and rail lines on. Um, You do have the issue in, in the East Coast cities, in the older legacy cities with the hub and spoke network from a. train perspective but you still have that whole bus system that can be reconfigured if you really kind of put your mind to it now boston might be a different thing i know that atlanta is a is a nightmare in terms of that their their road system is just so wonky that i i try to follow it and i tried to look on on aerial photos to see what was happening with it and it seems like it would be almost impossible to create a grid network on those types of streets but for the most part, I think a lot of cities actually have those opportunities to do the grid. Maybe, maybe not. I, I guess, you know, it would probably have to look into it a little deeper, but I think it's a possibility, um, to do that in a lot of cities. I know, you know, Chicago does it, um, those types of places do it. I know New York city has a grid, so they could probably do it too. I just think it's a political thing for the most part. And I think Christoph, um, you know, kind of said as much when, you know, he was pushing for it. It's really takes a lot of you know, bravery on the fact on the, you know, on the Metro board on the folks that work behind the scenes and even the citizens to get something like that done, because it's hard. It's not going to be, you know, uh, butterflies and puppies. It's going to be, you know, really hard work to get something like that done that actually makes a difference over time, but is painful to start out with.
2: Well, I think that's the story of, um, of the, and I was, I wasn't here for it, but the, uh, the 28 X of proposed BRT route, um, through through some more s- suburban in nature, but but not so much in demographic uh, neighborhoods, where I, I don't think there was because it was some some funding some funding deadlines. The engagement sure. portion with the community was was not as in depth as it probably should have been. Maybe, maybe. you
0: hit on the other touchy issue of um, we had it in a podcast with uh, a former secretary of the DOT James Aloisi who talked about the four constituencies of the twenty eight X. I think you had the uh-huh. the common thing. You had the uh, you had the residents in the area. Uh, you had the people who would use it, and you had the um, the, the business problem. community, which was in favor of it, and you had the the church community, which uh, we actually on that corridor. There's actually double and triple parking on Sundays, um, which is like tolerated by the city for you know because you know you're worshiping the the Lord or whatever. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no. I realize I'm being recorded and, uh, but the, 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 um, all, the always reverent uh, <laughs> German yeah. um, But the, 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 This is the touchy issue of um, Of a community You know The community has to believe Like it has to come from the community And really it doesn't always Necessarily have to come from the community But the community has to believe that it comes from the community So it's like there's, you know, there's, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but maybe there, there, there,
2: there's, there, there's gotta be a community buy-in and there's gotta be a, a way that, that, um, you, you, you've, you've gotta have those advocates from the community on your side. And so that, that takes, uh, you know, that, like that, that's what you talked about, that, that it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not, you just, you know, you, you just show up with a billboard one day that says, Here here's where we're putting the bus route. Um, and you know, and, 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 and not that you're not going to say no to some people. Uh, and I, I remember, uh, during that podcast, you were talking about how s- some of the, some of the route changes were just as, were just as simple as, as a politician wanted it that way. And they, and they kept it that way. So, you know, it's not that mm-hmm. you're not ever mm-hmm. going to say no to some of those route changes, but under but being there and understanding what are the unique, um, what are the unique challenges and what are the unique things about that community that you've got to design into the bus route. Uh, and, and that sometimes gets, gets lost, um,
1: well, I know, if we could switch gears a little bit, I know that um, Jeremy's favorite, um, so one of his favorite subjects to talk about. <laughs> I have a lot. Um, that we, that we, we've we devoted portions of podcasts to before. This whole uh, very, very popular topic of tactical urbanism, um, I think we became more uh, um, acquainted with it when we when we heard from people from a better block um, speak here in Boston last year at the Livable Streets um, 10 and one street talks. Um, and since then, we've always been trying to think about, like, can tactical urbanism? Is that how, what, when tactical urbanism meets transit, what could happen? Can that happen? Like, what, do you have any thoughts on that, Jeff? Like, is there a way that we can do things um, um, tactically under the radar without official approval in transit to make things better?
3: You know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I've thought many times about going with a bucket of paint and painting a bus line, lane out on Geary Boulevard, just to just to just to put it down there to show people. Um, then another crazy idea I've had is, is to actually in the street, you know, at each street corner, have the color and the number of the bus on the street. Um, and then maybe have a line that goes, that follows that bus route. Kind of like you have those lines on the maps, but then you can have them on the streets as well. That'd be interesting.
0: So people who say that, you know, rail is permanent and you can see the train tracks and you always know where it's going, which is not really true, but Mm -hmm. people who say stuff like that, (laughs) it's like, okay, well, well, because you know, there's different tracks and you know, the thing may or may not show up and whatever, but the you know, you sort of have, like, the, the route there is the bus route, and so therefore you know you've found the route.
3: Yeah, something like that. Just Or just a reminder, hey, there's a bus that goes through here. You know, it doesn't even have to be that big of a – it's just kind of a mental note. Oh, yeah, that's there. Um, it you knows, know, it's it gets...
0: almost on the information side. Yeah, well, w- w- yeah. wayfinding
2: is a big part of uh, of, of technical urbanism, uh, you know, paying directions or or painting, you know, the um, uh, the name of the of the business district or neighborhood on the sidewalk as a stencil. I mean, little things like yeah. that, I think – uh, especially, you know, for for people that are new to an area, um, you know, making transit, especially bus routes, it can be confusing. Make it a little bit more digestible and uh, and and more informational.
0: And one of the things that I've struggled with is doing things that are helping. Transit. I mean, this is this is all great stuff, but you know, to try to really improve speed and reliability and that sort of stuff is is doing things for transit beyond access to transit so yeah we can go out and paint the bus lane but uh, cars are going to drive in it We can go out there (laughs) and i can put up a whole bunch of bollards and planters and whatever but um you know transit the transit agency is an institution and you know in order to get the employees of that institution to do certain things like it has to come from above it's not like i can just tell the bus oh here's the bus lane go here and like they're probably not going to do that
3: Right, yeah, no, it's a a little bit of a different calculus than, say, uh, walking or biking, right, where you have, you know, people that are going, A, at a slower speed, but also less infrastructure uh, required, per se. I would think that there's probably things you can do to make things more readable, but also the... The way that the bus go, I mean, the bus is going to go where the bus goes, just because that's where the driver is going to go. But there's got to be ways to where you can make things easier on people. I mean, the whole point for me is making things fun or making things more you know, reliable per se. And so, you know, putting down chairs that allow people to um, sit at the bus stops is one thing that a lot of f- folks I think have done. And, and that's a tactical urbanism thing f- for transit on the operation side though. I don't know outside of painting lines and, and that are more visible or Maybe
1: creating bus, yeah. bus bull
3: creating bus, but well, that's another thing too, right? You could do that. You could actually make a, you know, paint, just paint the, the um, concrete to see, what that is you know what that looks like and even if it's just a demonstration or even just have cones you know cones or concrete you know, we've, all, we've
1: also we there was a conversation that happened uh, actually this conversation happened with um um what's right leg pegged why am i not thinking oh of it? He uh was, jonathan furtick, jonathan furtick yeah. which actually which he was actually mentioned um on on your one of your recent um podcasts but i'm gonna yeah, talk about it in my... a different vein because he was he was mentioned in doing some tactical urbanism with bike routes Um, Or bike lanes. But I was going to say, you know, I had a conversation with him last week and we were talking about, um, you know, is there a way with the technology that exists now? and A lot of cities are installing um, signal priorities on their traffic lights for fire and ambulance and police, but they're not being used for the streetcars or the buses. And so, you know, we kind of had a conversation. Is, is it possible to sort of <laughs> in, in, impose uh, signal priority um, by doing some, tech, you know, technological uh, uh, maneuvering um, with these, you know, w- w- by... P- whether it's placing some, some type of uh, transmitter on, on the vehicles or doing something uh, with the signals. But uh, it, would be, it would be neat to just flip a switch, and the next day there's signal priority.
3: <laughs> you know, somebody was telling me recently about MIT, a bunch of students back in the day. They were playing some other team in football. And they had reprogrammed the scoreboard to say different things, (laughs) and um, I, you know, I think they got an A in their in their you know uh, wireless class or whatever. They got an A in the
1: football game.
2: (laughs) They didn't get an A
3: in the football game, I don't think, but they got an A. The the students that did the 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 scoreboard reconstitution got an A. Um, it's kind of like those the hacking of those uh, signs that are in the streets, the the speed signs, you know, the speed cameras. They put up these like two wheeled trailers with uh, the speed limit. You know, you are going X amount. You are going over the the speed limit or whatever. No, of you course, know, they're, people usually, have ha-
0: they're usually in the bike lane.
3: Yeah, they're usually in the bike lane, which is great. It's a dead or...
1: giveaway for a street that's been designed poorly for the speed that you're wanting. So. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so. so it sounds like something that the MIT folks could could help out with, you know, designing you know, new RFID devices to switch lights for buses and, and streetcars that you can kind of, you know, be secret. What is it, the, the uh, Italian job? That's what it was, where, um, you know, Seth Green's character was sitting at the Amtrak station and he was, or the bus station, the Greyhound station, and he was like controlling all of the lights in the system so that they I could get away. <laughs> is that the one where they did Something the mini like through? The, yeah, yeah, the uh, the, the, river, exactly. the, the, the culverts
1: maybe. in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah okay.
3: exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's that's what popped
0: up. All
1: mind. right. On that note, so we've got we've got three amazing topics left that we had talked about, maybe talking about, and uh, I'm thinking we are have to narrow this down to one, um, and so because we definitely are already going over our our target. Um, <laughs> what so else new? so we're gonna go ahead and not talk about privatization tonight. Um, but, uh, so how about, how about pop-up transit? You know, I know that, I know that, uh, Leap Transit is now defunct in San Francisco. And, um, I read an article about that, that actually I saw on, uh, one of your daily postings, Jeff, and I was surprised to learn that they owned their own buses, but they only had two buses. Now we've got our own pop-up, and I, I'd say this is air quotes, pop-up transit. We have our own pop-up transit with Bridge Transit here in Boston, and they seem to have more staying power. And they have, um several routes i've lost count i think they've got like at least six routes now um they have their own originally they were contracting with um you know coach uh, buses and things like that now they've got different sizes they've got buses that are wrapped i'm not sure if that means they own their buses now or they just have some long-term contracts but you know jeff what are, what are you seeing with uh pop up transit this obviously is going beyond just uber and lyft of course now we have uber pool and Lyft Line, but. What are you seeing with that, and what do you, what, why do you think that you know leap transit didn't work, and maybe bridge is working? Are you have any familiar, familiarated with that, and and how is that different from Lyft line or Uber pool, and what what are the opportunities there, or the, I don't know, should we be worried about that from a transit perspective?
3: Uh, I don't know if you need to worry about it really. I think that, you know, people like the real thing, you know, whether it's a bus or. a or train, or even just driving in a car, riding in a car, you know. I think the problem with uh, leap over versus bridge was leap didn't uh, dot their i's and cross their t's when it came to the public utilities commission, and so and, and the, the city and uh, filling out all their forms and making sure they had all their uh, ducks in a row, and so they got shut down pretty quick. I think that was the biggest issue. Um, for them was that they just didn't do they didn't they didn't get the right permits and things, and so they got put out of commission really quickly. Um, another thing is that you know do you really want to pay five bucks when you can pay two bucks to go on the same route? Even if you just, even if you get an extra kombucha or coffee or something, (laughs) that's (laughs) like, that's like, like, you know, it's, it's not really the biggest thing. And the biggest thing that actually sunk them was the bad press because people were getting on the bus and then they would talk to the reporters and say, well, at least we don't have those people on our bus. It's like, come on guys, you, you, (laughs) you're, you're just going to make a whole lot of people angry at you because you don't want to, you know, sit with the unwashed masses. So, you know, I think that was their downfall. Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with Bridge. I know that Leap popped up because there were a lot of articles on it, and I was able to read up on it um, a bunch more. But I don't know if we should actually be worried too much about the private transit. You know, they're basically taking routes that are profitable and just putting more people on them, which could be good if the buses are crush-loaded at certain times of day. You know, the the Google buses and the LinkedIn buses and all those buses that go to the south – South Bay those are the ones that are carrying 40,000 people a day and, and it's actually beneficial now I always argue that the problem isn't necessarily the buses themselves and that's not what's causing the gentrification displacement and all that stuff that's been going on a long time I think it's the bad land use at the at the destination end where these companies in the in Silicon Valley are building these really crappy horrible campuses away from transit you know they're building them away from um, you know from Caltrain from uh, the existing transit networks from bike networks et cetera. Now, they're starting to do improvements where they're actually getting to the point where they're putting trip caps on. I know that um, at NACTO and and at Revolution last week, I heard some folks talking about um, – I think it was Google in the Bayshore area. They have – in order to build more – I think it was LinkedIn, yeah – in order to build more real estate space or at least commercial space for themselves, they have to have a trip cap put on so that they don't uh, generate any more trips. And then they have to pay a fee – um, I know that Jeff Tomlin talked about this in one of my sessions and I think I tweeted about it a little bit. but what that's really innovative and in that it tells people that they're actually thinking about these issues and they know that they have a bad land use <laughs> plan because and they know that they're not near transit. And back to the, the you know the pop-up transit and those types of things, um, I think that you know we need to really focus on making our bus systems better. I think we need to really do a better job of giving ourselves a chance at serving people properly. And part of the problem is politics in that we have mayors like here in San Francisco and folks here in San Francisco that really can't get past the idea of, you know, taking out stops, making sure that you can, you know, run the bus faster, giving lanes over to transit. As the cities get more congested, we're going to have to focus on the core services. And then we can let you know, Lyft and Uber kind of take care of the outskirts. I think that those are actually viable ways to get some of the suburban areas where we spend so much money trying to serve a very small population. But transit, I think, is going to be the solution for the core city um, for a really long time, even with the advent of driverless cars. You know, driverless cars are still a car. It's still only a four-passenger deal unless they figure out a way to do driverless buses or driverless Trams, or some dude had like I think it was yesterday I posted an article with some dude had tra- transit boxes or something like that that like you know connected to each other and then split off from each other and then these just random boxes running through the street which is really weird it seemed like almost a uh, a, a box w- was a, it seemed like it should have blood running down its cheeks and zombieified it's like <laughs> you know, walking to the streets like the, of San Francisco is that
0: like the personal rapid transit like I, I call the it's pod the, people it was kind of
3: like personal rapid transit but it was self driving car but they connected to each other and they weren't on a on a rail, you know, they were on the streets, they were operating as vehicles, their own autonomous vehicles. So it was more like more like our autonomous vehicle, but kind of in that pod mindset, which gadget bond as it is, is kind of the crazy thing that pops up all the time when you talk about light rail and streetcars and those types of things. But I think the center city and the and the, the lifts and the Ubers, they I think they have a geometry problem that they're going to have to fix if they want to serve a place like New York City or San Francisco, because I know that we're seeing now. Um, You know, that there's complaints. I don't know if, you know, the data isn't out yet, or at least it hasn't been studied extensively as to say whether those are jamming up um, the streets in downtown and in Manhattan and places like San Francisco. But it seems like there's a lot of cars with the Uber sticker and those stupid purple mustaches. So... Um, you know I think that there 's going to be a geometry problem, and it 's going to hit the wall soon, and I think transit is the best way to solve it and I think we really, really need to focus on developing dedicated rights of ways for those vehicles um, for transit vehicles because that 's really going to be the way that we can actually get better headways and we can get more service and we can actually get more reliable service. I know that folks you know talk about the bus all the time, but I think the biggest thing for me is actually getting up to a place on time I know that for me there's a, you know, I went to university of Texas and we're big in football, uh, watching football. And so, you know, I'll go to try to watch football with my classmates on the North side of town. And that takes, an hour to go three miles. It shouldn't take an hour to go three miles. I can actually walk faster sometimes than getting to get to Union Street to watch the Texas game. So, you know, it's oftentimes if I'm running late or something, I have to take a, a, a rideshare rather than um, having you know to take the bus, which is what I want to do. So, I think if we can figure out a way to either tunnel under and do a subway or dedicate lanes, that's going to be my choice every time. So, it's all about reliability. It's all about the ability to get places faster and quicker, and people to feel like they aren't worried about the bus breaking down every day or the reliability issue. And that, that's going to be the thing that really matters when it comes to pop-up transit.
1: Well, you mentioned two things that I think are going to um, um, lead us well into show topics that we have coming up um, to perk up our listeners ears, those who are still you know, listening, um, which is, which, which is the two things is one that you said something about um, the geometry problem. Um, of, of pop-up transit uh, forces it towards sort of the lower density outskirts of cities. And also um, that um, pop-up transit in in the form of like the LEAP or the bridge is out there really is more uh, siphoning off or um, taking the excess from main trunk routes, um, which is interesting because there's been a lot of conversation in um, in Boston um Transit circles, I guess you could say there's been some Globe editorials and things like that of saying, well, perhaps bridge could pick up some of these peripheral bus routes that have less traffic um, so that we can rededicate those buses to, um, you know, overcrowded routes uh, in, in central, um, you know, key bus routes, things like that. So it's it's interesting because you did point out they they tend to flock towards the, the higher use bus routes as opposed to the lower density bus routes which i think makes yeah. sense if you're a private operator trying to make a profit.
3: Yeah, they they but they but that's the thing is they're trying to make a profit. So where's the profit going to be at? It's going to be on those bus routes that are heavily traveled, not necessarily those peripheral routes. So i think they might be barking up the wrong tree if they think that a company like bridge or uh, anybody else is going to go out and and uh, you know serve those low um, you know, those low ridership lines without some sort of a subsidy, which is what we do now. That's the whole thing about those lines that go out to the periphery is the subsidy that we give them. You know, the, the lines, typically lines in cities that have really good ridership aren't necessarily the ones that are dragging the system down. It's the ones that are on the periphery that we, or the paratransit, for example, that take out the money um, from the rest of the thing. I also wanted to mention something that got brought up today that's going to be in the articles tomorrow, um, that it was on Twitter too. Emily Kester, who is the head of transportation policy at Lyft release. And I think she and Lyft released a, a thing today saying transit and Lyft should be friends. And, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, the, the big, on it. the big ad campaign that they're working on. And I'm, I, w- I was actually interested in your guys's thoughts on that. If you actually saw that, um, I know that in, I met, I met Emily last week at, at NACTO and I actually had some, um, strong, Tweets for her um, previously because I know that on the app it still says tr- uh, bus and um, uh, bus replacement for lift. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I'm I'm just curious what you guys think about that whole transit. And I know Yona Freemark uh, also kind of pushed back on it and said they were they were not uh, on their at least on their images they were not even including bus routes they were just including trains.
0: Yeah, I mean it, this is an issue that that often comes up in my mind because I've taken a lot of flack for this because. Um, Uber and, and Lyft especially Uber seems to be pretty popular here um, and unlike in New York and maybe some other places it's, it's not regulated at all over here um, it's not even marked so you know it's like you can but you know you, you, as a bicyclist I've learned to identify the Uber cars um, uh-huh. by their behavior um, but <laughs> what, something that, that you know occurs to me and and a lot of people don't agree with this is I. the conventional wisdom is that the you know, Uber and Lyft are, are simply offering more options, kind of in the same way that, you know, at a that that by providing these options, that they're making it easier to to live without a car and to function as you know car light or car free. And and to me, for for most of what I see through just being out with other people and and observing, you know, who's using Uber, is these are additional car trips that are being created because you know, people who would never take a taxi before because you'd have to go walk a few blocks and then try to flag one down and it was a pain in the ass and it was expensive, you know, now they can go on the phone and they can get Uber to come and it's cheaper and they, you know, I've had people, you know, leaving my house or wherever I'm at in the evening say, oh, I'll just take Uber because, you know, I don't want to walk three blocks of the train. So, you know, I get that a lot and I, wow. I tend to think, I mean, I, you know, I call it an illegal taxi service, which is basically what it is, And Mm -hmm. I tend to, so I'm pretty negative on Uber, and I tend to think it's just adding more trips. Is this, so I'm curious if people have other things, other opinions on this.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I take Uber home from your house often, Jeremy, because it, it saves me, you're right, it's three blocks to the train, which I will then wait for 10 minutes at 9.30 at night to take three stops, to then wait for a bus for 15 minutes, to take me 15 minutes to get back to my house so I can then walk three blocks, you know, so it's sort of, a quarter to a third of the time, and yeah, it's more expensive, but it's like, I'll do that twice a month, you know? So uh, that keeps me from driving to your house, or that keeps me from having a second car. So I think it really does allow people to think twice about whether they need a car. So I put it in the same category as Zipcar, but my concern lately actually has been more with um, the regulation side of it, as far as not not a transit concern, but more of a concern of... Um, the taxi industry being over-regulated and Uber and Lyft being under-regulated and where's that happy medium? Because I actually am starting to feel sorry for the taxi drivers, which I've had a lot of unpleasant taxi experiences <laughs> and I've had no unpleasant um, Uber or Lyft experiences other than um, I had a really bad Uber pool experience um, I found that it's a really bad way to ruin a good date night. Um, if you get the wrong person, <laughs> join your Uber pool. Well, th-
2: well, th- th- that's cheaper being a cheap date. And not just, yeah, right. Exactly. And not just that's doing a full press Uber when you got a date.
1: <laughs> it was actually yeah, my man. date's idea.
3: <laughs> but, I guess that absolves you a
2: little bit, but still. <laughs> um, well, I, so my 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 thing, my issue with it is is to me it's almost astroturfing these new little partnerships they're doing with transit agencies because I, and, and this is something and I don't remember who wrote the article but something some people have brought up in the past is what are these transit agencies getting? Is Uber sharing their data with them so that they can so that they can better plan their bus routes? I mean what, what is, what's productive out of this relationship other than uh, agencies getting to look hip because they've got yeah. Uber uh, or Lyft pooling with them and then Uber and Lyft getting to look slightly more responsible because they're they're um, they're partnering with the transit agency, and so that that that's one of my uh, my big concerns, and, and what I, I, I hope uh, is is on the mind of all of those people who are who are on that uh, who are on that Lyft ad is is okay what what tangible things is Uber bringing to the table to the transportation system? Um, well,
1: and, and if and the data sharing that I've seen, I think Jeff, you talked about this on one of your one of your um, podcasts. The data sharing, doesn't it only go down to the zip code level or I don't think it's the area code. I think it's the zip code level, which isn't very useful data sharing in a city where we really need street or block. You zip know? codes
2: can be huge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Zip
1: codes don't really tell you anything, you know, in a city like San Francisco or New York or Boston. So,
3: Yeah, I think they have to do extensive cleaning to get anywhere further down than that to give it to transit agencies and, th- and stuff. So I think that that's still probably something that they're negotiating. I don't know all the details, so I couldn't be for sh- certain for sure. Um, of that. But I do know that I think, I think Tanya and I were talking about it at one point and and it was something at that point, I think it was only zip code data, which, which doesn't help anybody to be honest with you. And I hate zip code data and I hate, and I know if you've listened to my podcast, you know, that I hate zip code or anything above that in terms of data size, um, in terms of giving us information. So yeah, real information that you can actually use to measure it um, I, you know, I think you have to think about it from the transit agency's long-term, what their long-term ex- expectations are. I'm wondering if, you know, with funding kind of dwindling and the pressure that they're under, if they're hoping that Lyft and Uber eventually or ride-sharing service or ride-hailing services, I would, you know, there's a difference, right? The, you know, the, the line, the Uber pool and Lyft line are actually ride-hailing services, it feels like, and the, and the Uber you know, X or whatever else, those feel like just, you know, next generation taxis. I think there's, a, there's a little bit of difference between the car sharing and then, and then the taxi type service. And then your trip, your point about trips is well taken. Um, jeremy about the um just the the idea that that you know if you take a if you take a shared use mobility vehicle you're still creating a trip so you know if you're having if you're trying to reduce trips because they're create they create greenhouse gas emissions or induced vmt or whatever it is then what's the point of even you know doing it at all if you're not going to be walking biking or or taking transit with all these other people who are are on another trip that you're already going to be on um but I think you have to think about the long game for these transit agencies. I really think that they think that, you know, with the dwindling resources, that eventually, you know, maybe Uber or Lyft can be that kind of last mile connection that they might not have to serve anymore. It might be something where they run a trunk line through or by a neighborhood, and then they can hope that there's, you know, maybe a, a single driver or somebody that kind of is in that neighborhood that can serve that, that purpose of getting people to that last mile to get people from to and from. Although the argument might be that if you're just going to take Uber that first you know, mile or the last mile, you might as well take it the next two miles instead of waiting for the bus to come and then stopping at every stop, et cetera. So that's another argument I think that you can have. But... Um, you know, it's really tricky right now. I, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are embracing it. And I I mean, I use it. So I, I, I mean, I use it, you know, from time to time. And I think that it does allow me to keep from not having to buy a car. But at the same time, it, it still really bothers me. And I can't, I still can't quite figure out why it bothers me. And I still can't quite figure out why I'm annoyed by it, even though I use it. Um, the services I know why they're 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 good in the sense that they come in you know three minutes or less at least in my neighborhood they do um, and you can get anywhere you want to go and you just pay you know fair amount of money for it but at the same time there's just something there that bothers me and I couldn't tell you because i haven't really figured it out yet but well it uh,
1: bothers me jeff that it's already it's gotten so big so fast that they are um really threatening industries mm-hmm. i i you know i feel more more about it when i see it in other countries you know paris and london and, mm-hmm. and places that i've really enjoyed visiting where I, I know that um perhaps um the taxi industry is more of a, of, a, of a of a career it's choice true, yeah. yeah a lifetime career um mm-hmm. vocation maybe than it is in a lot of our cities but yeah, that that definitely affects me where I feel like, oh I don't I don't mind it and maybe that's maybe that's me talking to both sides of my mouth. I don't mm. mind it being in every American city I get to. <laughs> <laughs> but but I you know, when I go to another more exotic location, you know, then I'm like, Oh, I don't want just like, you know, Uber to pick me up. That's right. like getting McDonald's in Paris, you know. Um so so yeah. Is it
3: is it is it kind of the Walmartization of transportation? I mean if we think about Walmart as a large company that went into a lot of main streets and basically put all the local guys out of business, right? You could get a, a grill for $10 instead of $20, right? That's basically what they're doing is undercutting a lot of prices and things like that. Is that, is, is that what's happening? Is that what we're seeing? And then now, and then we're going to be, and then we're going to be complaining. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, it could be. And then there's the fear that mom, they run the mom and pop out and then the fifth and then the $10 grill now becomes the $15 grill. And a the seventeen dollar grill.
0: The you know the taxi industry has not been a model. At least here, has not been a model of you know a wonderful worker environment. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Not, well, not for the, the workers or for no, the passengers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've somebody who's, I've driven a pedicab, so I have, I have direct experience with that, which is essentially the same model. Um, but from everything I've read about Uber, is that their their labor practices are terrible, and you know, I know this. So it, it, it. But my Uber drivers
1: are always very like happy and like. Conversational and helpful, and yeah, it's you know. because you rate
0: them. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that is which important. is important. It's which helpful. is better than the alternative. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. Right. So it, it's you know it's not it's, it's not a clear you know um, yes no. I think in this in this situation, but it's um, it does bring you know we we don't have the com- we don't have a meaningful way of having a conversation of you know what are we trying to achieve because whenever you, you know, for all its problems, the public sector is supposed to be accountable to the public and supposed to have a public, you know, a fair public process. And, you know, this is why it takes forever to get rid of a bus stop mm-hmm. because we have to be accountable to, you know, but in theory, that's supposed to be a good thing. You know, whereas the private sector, yes, the private sector can come in and do things quick, but they can also do things that are not in the public interest. And, you know, where is that line and how do we deal with it? And
2: where's the accountability? yeah
0: well i'm looking forward to the first city that finds that balance for sure you
1: know so um yeah. well i think that that's um about is it was there anything else we wanted to any parting shots for jeff jeff any parting you, shots for
0: you i want to ask you real quick jeff if i can about um sure pr- one thing we talk about a lot is uh fair payment and we you know we don't have to go down the rabbit hole now but um i wanted to know how the proof of payment system is working out in san francisco that's a great
3: question Oh, I, th- i think it's going really well actually i think that I know that from just personal experience, I really appreciate being able to get, get on the back door of a bus and not have to wait a whole long line to get on and then do it at every single stop. So, you know, from personal experience, I don't have the data or anything, but from personal experience, I think it's working out really well. Um, you know, being able to get on the back doors of trains and buses without having to look at the driver in the eye and give them your money. Are there, um, things
0: that we should consider, you know, any, any like challenges or things that we should be aware of? Because, I think, you know, we're, we're going up against the, the T is proposing to uh, increase fares next year and, um, in July, I believe. And, um, you know, at this time of, you know, there, there's a lot, a lot of what's going on in the public is people are saying, you know, this is like, you know, we have really shitty service and, you know, what you're giving us for, you know, and, and especially at the last winter and probably another one. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, where we're coming from is that the whole, the whole fare structure needs work. And, you know, if we can come in from a, you know, we're, we're interested in, in looking at other ways of doing things and a new fare system being one of those. Um, so I think it has a lot of relevance. It's,
3: it's so weird because, you know, we have so many different transit agencies and they charge different fares, each of them. So they're each different in their own way. And so Clipper card basically is almost like a little credit card in that you basically just pay full price and maybe a quarter off of your next ride, if you get them, you know, 10 minutes apart or something like that, when you do the transfer. Um, so BART like basically has a really high fare box recovery ratio because the prices are so high, but then Muni and, and, and AC transit, for example, have really low ones, but from the, the, um, the standpoint of all door boarding and that type of thing, I think one of the problems that I've seen is that, When you have a vehicle that's crush loaded, it's really hard for people to get in to tap in with their cards uh, to the machines that that allow you to do that. And so I don't know how much that means that you're going to miss out on some payments because I know proof of payment, you know, they have like a really low rate of underpayment and people always complain about that. Like, oh, you're not paying your, your transit fare. But I think this might be another issue that's popping up, too, is that, you know, if you can't get on the train or if you're just barely crush loading into the train, you can't reach the the you know the thing that you're supposed to tap with your card that might be another issue as well
1: so we need we need we need off-board payment there
3: <laughs> yeah i mean but you know that's hard to do everywhere, well so does that but... mean
1: Jeff with the new proof of payment does that mean next time see i was there in san francisco uh, last march and uh when i got on the um is it the f line or the, the 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 trolley on uh, fourth street um the historic
3: streetcars or
1: yeah yeah exactly well some of them are historic They're not, not all of them but um yeah yeah it was one of the historic ones and there was like on the platform there was no place to pay you know and then it was really confusing when i got on board so so is that is, is there now uh payment on the platforms
3: well if you're i think that was like fourth and
1: king i think is where i got on
3: oh yeah yeah okay that's weird well so yeah there should be there should be payment on the platforms there um i'm not sure why maybe i was not a hurry didn't didn't see it yeah maybe so yeah, user that, error. It, that was my, my, my bad. User <laughs> error. That's where that's where the E line is going now too. The old historic streetcars are going all the way along the waterfront from the um, from the baseball stadium all the way to Fisherman's Wharf on the other side. So that's that's kind of the big new service that they just unveiled. That they've been trying to do for like ten years, but they never got around to it because of money. <laughs> last so. last yeah, week sure. uh,
1: in his talk, Governor Dukakis, uh, I guess he was in San Francisco recently, and and he talked about how he made his wife wait. 45 minutes until the old, um, Boston PCC car came through. (laughs) So, well, Jeff, thank you very much for spending, what what is this? just been 35, 40 minutes with us. Um, (laughs) so maybe we'll split this up into two shows, but it's certainly been a pleasure and maybe we can do this again in the future.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Thanks guys. guys. Appreciate it. Have fun.
0: Um, you can find Jeff online at the, OverheadWire.com and DirectTransfer.com, and he is the host of the Talking Headways podcast at uh, one of those fine sites. We will put a link at uh, TransitMatters.info.
1: You can find me at, at Hatchback31, and uh, Mark Abunia uh, t- uh, tweets for us uh, at Transit Matters.
0: Uh, every once in a while, I tweet at Transit Matters too, but most of the time you can blame Mark for it. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, Jeremy, am at Critical Transit.
2: Cool. Uh, Jared, I'm at Jarjo, J-A-R-J-O-H.
0: Cool, and thanks again for listening to Transit Matters, and go to transitmatters.info for more information and uh, sign up to help us out and give us money. And become a member. (laughs) That's what I meant. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed this special episode 19 of the Transit Matters podcast. A special little bonus episode for Critical Transit, and if you um, let me let me know uh, what you think I'm um, looking forward to I always enjoy hearing from people and uh, so that I'm not talking into this void which is uh, essentially a microphone on my desk uh, with nobody else in the room so uh, yeah and if you have suggestions for topics or guests uh, please let me know and um, yeah feedback at criticaltransit.com or uh, any of the other means at criticaltransit.com or on Twitter at criticaltransit.